When you're a high achieving individual, you put yourself under immense pressure. You hold yourself at super high expectations. And often these expectations are not realistic. And often achievers, they have a hard time coping with failure. Hey everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Leading the Rounds. Today we have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Dimitrios Sotiris. Dr. Sotiris is a practicing board certified psychiatrist specializing in the field of anxiety management. He's a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at Northeast Ohio Medical University. He studies and writes about the interface of anxiety and achievement. His popular Psychology Today blog, Anxiety and High Achievers, is viewed by more than 20,000 readers per month. He is passionate about empowering people to break free from the shackles of anxiety and develop healthy relationship with achievement. Through his work as a psychiatrist and writer, he seeks to fulfill this mission. His writing has appeared in Psychology Today, Psych Central, NAMI, Thrive Global, Kevin MD, and The White Coat Investor, among other publications. Outside of medicine, Dr. Satiris enjoys spending time with his wife and two young children. He also keeps close ties with his family in Greece and has fond memories from his childhood there. As always, if you enjoy what we're doing at Leading the Rounds, please subscribe and give us a positive rating. You can also interact with us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everybody and welcome to today's episode of Leading the Rounds. Today we are very privileged to have Dr. Dimitrios Satiris here on the show. Dr. Dimitrios, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me here, guys. Awesome. Peter, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. You know, a lot of meetings, but hanging in there. Awesome. So a lot of Dr. Dimitrios' work stems on anxiety and performance. And so we wanted to start the conversation there with a question that Peter and I have been thinking about, and that is, it seems paradoxically that high performers might suffer from anxiety. And your work a lot has been on high performance and anxiety. So what do you think is the root of this merger between performance and why people who are high performers suffer anxiety? Yeah, definitely. Great question. Now, let me take a step back and um, maybe define anxiety. And then uh, I'll answer the question. So anxiety is that feeling of, of dread, of apprehension that we have in anticipation of something. It might be that feeling that you get before taking an exam. It might be that feeling that you get before um, meeting and attending for the first time, before having a, um, an interview one day for a job, right? So it is the feeling that we get in anticipation. And to have anxiety is to be human we all experience anxiety. Uh, if we look at the brain from an evolutionary standpoint, the job of the brain is not to make you guys happy or me happy. The job of the brain is to protect us. Its job is to look for what can go wrong. You know, I'm looking out my window now, there's a pond out there. You know, our, our ancestors pro probably thought, my goodness, what if there's a gator in that pond as I go grab a, a drink of water, right? You know, our ancestors would go hunting, they'd have to worry about a cheetah lurking behind a bush, right? So 
to have anxiety is to be human. Of course, the issue is, does the anxiety get to the point that it affects your functioning? Do you have an anxiety disorder? So let's pivot now and talk about uh, achievers and performers, like, you know, people in, in, in medicine. One of the things that happens is, you know, there's this myth that like, my goodness, I'm, I'm in med school and I'm a physician and I'm working so hard and I'm doing well and I'm functioning well and I'm exempt from having anxiety. But the, but the opposite is true. Um, think about the amount of pressure that you guys have to go through to get into med school and to make it during med school. And then one day when you guys are in residency working these 30 hour shifts, that's a lot of pressure. And pressure is fuel for anxiety, right? Uh, think about how much pressure that you guys have to put yourself under to perform when you're taking an exam, right? When you take step one or step two, right? Step three down the road. Um, think about the amount of pressure that you feel when you're treating another human being, you know, when you're, when you're responsible for their health. So my experience has been that performers and achievers, especially in medicine, are quite prone to anxiety. I want to go back to the biological origin that you brought up for stress and anxiety. Some of the reading that I've done has kind of characterized it into two sources of anxiety. Anxiety from fear that you're actually in danger, which you brought up, like there might be an alligator that's waiting there ready to get you or anxiety from being ostracized from the group, biologically speaking, that we we used to be more group organized and being ostracized made you very vulnerable to threats as well. What do you think about that idea? And do you think that relates to anxiety in the present day? Uh, it does, yeah, it does. You know, in both the examples that you described there, Caleb, um, the common theme is that is that vulnerability, right? Um, so the fear of falling a victim to a predator, you're vulnerable, or the fear of being alone and not having somebody watch your back makes you vulnerable. So again, anxiety serves a purpose, which is to protect us in, in either situation. Moving forward in, in, you know, in today's society, when we look at anxiety, you know, there are two main components to it, which is what I tell people. There's the physical component and the cognitive component, and they fuel each other, right? So the most common thought that I hear when it, when it comes to anxiety is what if, like, what if something goes wrong? What if I have a negative outcome here? What if I fail a test? What if my attending doesn't like me? What if I get rejected? What if I fail? That's the cognitive thought, the main one. But then anxiety creates physical symptoms too. You know, it activates our sympathetic nervous system and there's a host of symptoms from head to toe. Uh, you name it, I've heard it, you know, tension headaches, TMJ, which affects our sleep, you know, teeth grinding, uh, lump in the throat, um, shallow breathing, chest pressure, um, we're not, stomach issues, stomach discomfort, uh, difficulties with our bowel movements. Um, we get shaky, we get sweaty because we're activating our sympathetic nervous system. Um, so these physical and cognitive symptoms of anxiety, they kind of fuel each other, you know, when you have the thought, an anxious thought that sends a signal to your brain, to the amygdala, to get the sympathetic nervous system firing up through a cascade of events. But then also when you have these physical symptoms, it's very logical for you to start to worry about them. Oh my God, you know, I'm having these physical symptoms. Is there something really bad going on here, right? 
Um, we may, you know, experience hypochondriasis or somatization, right? So I think of anxiety as, you know, having a cognitive component, a physical component, and these two components kind of fuel each other. I want to kind of bring it back to the original question that we're trying to get at here, which is um, if I could set the scene of like that star student in medical school who's acing all their tests, who's like executive president of the student senate, everything that they've got going on, everything, they seem so well put together. Why might it be that they're the ones feeling anxiety? Um, Caleb had mentioned that it could be the point of like one side of anxiety is being ostracized from the group. It, why might they feel vulnerable? Why might they feel anxious? Is it just this persona that they've built for themselves among their peers to be perfect? Or is there more to it than that? Well, you mentioned perfectionism, perfect there. And that is a huge risk factor for anxiety, right? You know, when, when you're a perfectionist, that is definitely going to be a contributing factor because what perfectionists do, they, they fall for the all or nothing fallacy. You know, either I score 100 or I'm a failure. And that's a very brutal way to live life, right? Um, and that's a lot of pressure to have to try to cope with, right? So, yeah, I mean, that per perfectionism is playing a role in anxiety. But again, you know, when you're, when you're a high achieving individual, you put yourself under immense pressure, you hold yourself at super high expectations. And often these expectations are not realistic. And often achievers, they have a hard time coping with failure. They fear failure. They don't, they, they take it personally, another cognitive distortion. They take failure personally. They blame themselves for failure. They don't do well with it, right? I mean, think about the last time you didn't score well on an exam, guys. I mean, how did you feel? I mean, that wasn't a positive experience, right? So you can appreciate how when you're a high achieving individual, you hold yourself at super high standards, often at un unsustainable or unrealistic expectations. And that is going to play a role in one having anxiety. The other thing that happens with high achievers is that they lose perspective. I want to add that as well. Like, you know, you guys are, you know, grad school, med school, you guys are in the top one, two, 3% of the nation. So then you guys are comparing yourselves to other high achievers. So you guys have lost perspective in your bubble. Like you guys are not comparing yourself to like the average student. You guys have always compared yourself to like the summa cum laude student, right? So when you're engaging in these social comparisons with the top of the top, that is a very harsh, difficult way to live because you're setting the bar super, super high. And if you don't keep on meeting that bar, then you don't feel good about that experience of failure. So does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. One of my uh, personal values is chasing excellence. And I, that kind of relates to what you're talking about in the fact that I always want to do my best and I always want to try to try my best to score as high as I can or to to not necessarily to be perfect but to be as good as I can how does somebody rectify that with not always scoring the highest and not being anxious if they do perform less than they think they should yeah so excellence allows for it gives us margin of error it allows for us to be imperfect because as human beings we're imperfect all of us are you know um, perfectionism does not exist. 
So you can score an A, you can get an excellent grade and still like make mistakes along the way, right? Um, but the fact that you guys are in grad school, the fact that you guys are in med school, that is excellent in itself. I mean, think about all the hoops that you had to jump through to be in the position that you are. And I think what happens is we forget that, we become desensitized to that. We start to take it for, gra for, for granted, right? But the fact that you guys are in med school or grad school, that alone speaks of the excellence. And again, what excellence does is it promotes a growth mindset that, yeah, you want to shoot for the A, you want to give it your all. I mean, I, I agree with that, but it's okay if you get a B. You know, quite frankly, it's okay if you get a C, you know, even if somebody is the last ranked student in their class, they're still going to come out with their degree and they're still going to be a competent physician and they're still going to make a positive contribution in the life of others and still have room for growth, right? Because it doesn't end once you become an attending. I mean, you still have to continue to grow and pursue excellence even then. You know, we have this fallacy that like once I make it through med school and once I make it through residency, it's over. Uh, far from it, you know, far from it. You know, I think at that point, we still have to continue to learn and grow and pursue that excellence. But the beauty of excellence compared to perfectionism is that excellence allows for growth. It gives you permission to make mistakes, to fail, whereas perfectionism does not allow for any margin for error. If you, if you, if you make a mistake, you beat yourself up. So perfectionism is a brutal and harsh way to live life. And it's on the rise. And if we look at the data, perfectionism is on the rise. We're definitely seeing that there have been meta-analyses that have shown that perfectionism is on the rise among college students, for example, uh, in the U.S. and in Britain. So um, that's a great way to reframe a growth mindset versus a mindset of perfectionism that I find, quite frankly, stifling. Would you contrast the approach? the perfectionism mindset to a fixed mindset? Are you using them in a different way than say Carol Dweck would use it? Yeah, no, I'm not thinking of perfectionism as, as a fixed mindset. I'm thinking of it as a, I mean, it can be a fixed mindset because a lot of perfectionists, what they do is that the, they've raised the bar so high and they know that it's unattainable that they don't, they don't even bother. Hmm. So that can happen. But thinking of it as long as far as one can try to strive for perfection, but it is an, an unattainable and unsustainable expectation. And then when they fail to reach their perfectionism, their perfectionistic standards, then what happens is the inner critic kicks in, Freud calls, talks about the superego, this part of us where we have these internalized standards Often they come from our parents or in society. And then we beat ourselves up for not meeting these unattainable standards. And that makes us very vulnerable to difficulties with depression and anxiety, right? Because we have this inner critic who beats us up for not meeting these standards. So I would say that I'm approaching it from that angle. Uh, if we can reduce our perfectionistic tendencies and focus a little more on that growth mindset that you guys are talking about, I think we make ourselves less susceptible to emotional difficulties. And we, and, and we know that people who work in medicine, medical students and 
residents, and even attending. So we are vulnerable to emotional difficulties and burnout. You mentioned that perfectionism is on the rise, and it almost seems like a societal problem because we as a culture and as a society almost encourage getting top scores to advance your career, getting top scores to get in the best colleges. And so maybe this is a little bit out of your wheelhouse, but how, how as a society do we create something that doesn't make adolescents and make young professionals want to be those perfectionists that drives them into anxiety? Yeah, I th- that's a good point. And I think what's going on is that the reason we're pursuing perfectionism in our lives and in the lives of our loved ones, like our youth, is because it's based on the psychological phenomenon of affect forecasting. Um, this is the work of Dan Gilbert out in, uh, Dr. Dan Gilbert out at Harvard. And he talks about how as human beings, we pursue things that we believe will make us happy. And we obviously avoid things that we believe will make us, will lead to pain. So we, we assume that success and productivity will make us happy. But we fall for a, a bias known as the impact bias. We overestimate how much happier we will be. We idealize getting a, being a straight A student and forget that it comes with its fair share of uh, challenges and setbacks. And I think we combat perfectionism by combating the myths associated with personal success. That success does not necessarily equal happiness. You know, even when you make it to your desired destination, like becoming a physician, there will be plenty of days that are difficult and plenty of days that are gonna be really hard, right? If we look at the data, from what I read from the Medscape survey of, of, of attending physicians, over 40% are burned out, right? That, that Those are staggering numbers. So, you know, we idealize what it is to become a physician, but then when you get there, hey, it's not always sunny with clear blue skies. There's plenty of overcast days with, you know, heavy rains and strong winds, right? So I think we combat perfectionism by combating the mythology or the cognitive distortions associated with achievement and success. For our listeners, you've already decided, you've already defined anxiety as having that feeling of dread. And so how would you define stress? And then what would you say to people who are feeling anxious or stressed to better understand the feelings that they're, they're feeling for lack of a better term <laughs> to modify their behaviors to, you know, be more, um, welcoming to stress and being better able to manage their anxiety. Yeah, so this is my opinion. I I believe that there's a negative connotation against anxiety. I think people look at as anxiety as weakness, like, hey, there's something wrong with me. I'm not anxious. And we use stress as language. It's more socially acceptable, you know, because stress implies that you're busy. Stress implies that you have all these stressful things that you're dealing with. And I think people prefer the term stress instead of anxiety because there's less stigma associated with the term stress rather than anxiety. Um, so I define stress as anxiety. That's what I believe. You know, uh, you know, uh, th- th- that's how I look at it. And people may disagree with me, and that that's fine. You know, so 
if you guys want me to use the term stress, I will to make it more socially acceptable. No, no, use, the, use the terms that you, you want to use. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I look at it as anxiety, but again, oh my, I'm not anxious. I'm stressed. That's a safer term to use, right? It has less association with like mental health. Um, but as far as techniques to manage stress or anxiety, and, you know, and we can dive into this in more depth if you want, you know, I, I look at it as, as biopsychosocial, you know, um, there are biological variables that make us prone to anxiety, uh, psychological variables and, and social variables. So I think if we want to like improve our stress levels, anxiety levels, we need to um, address it from, from all three perspectives. So do you feel that anxiety is more of an umbrella term for some negative feelings, other like stress or any other ones that you might, might come to mind that you would want to share with our listeners? Yeah, yeah. I look at um, anxiety as the umbrella term. And then in that umbrella, you have like panic attacks, you have phobias, you have social anxiety, you have worrying, um, you know, so, but, but anxiety is like the, the experience is, is, is the umbrella term for the experience that we all are aware of, but again, we all differ as far as the type of anxiety, as far as the intensity, as far as the frequency, as far as the triggers. But yeah, anxiety is like the the umbrella term. There was a TED talk in 2013 by Kelly McGonigal, who talked about how studies have shown that stress is potentially only negative if you think about it that way. So uh, there's, they look at two groups and, and half the people, um, thought about stress as my body's going into fight or flight and anxiety is a bad thing. And all these feelings that I'm feeling are negative. Whereas the other half just thought about it as my body's preparing for action and, and there's a potentially impactful experience that I'm being a part of. And the, those who thought about stress negatively, uh, were more, prone to anxiety and the negative effects of stress. Have you heard about this at all? And what were your opinions be on that? Yeah, great question. I, I haven't seen that uh, uh, TED talk from 2013. I haven't. Um, I will say that how we look at stress can play a role in us regulating stress. So I have, for example, you know, patients that I treat and they start to worry about their worrying. They start to stress about their stress levels. Like, oh my God, I'm stressed. Oh my God, I'm having these physical symptoms. Oh my God, is a panic attack happen, about to happen? And that makes us more vulnerable to stress. So if one adapts a helpless perspective, you know, a, a, a perspective in which I cannot handle the stress, then you're more likely to suffer from the stress, right? From the anxiety. So feeling, having a perspective in which you feel like, you know what, it's anxiety, and I've got my tools and skills to regulate the anxiety. That does play a role, right? You know, for example, what I tell my patients, you know, who have panic attacks is like, okay, you know, you start, you, you know, the symptoms that lead to your panic attack. Let's focus on using the tools and techniques that we've discussed, boom, right off the bat and be proactive to regulate our anxiety levels. And once, once they've mastered these tools, they have a sense of control of empowerment over the anxiety and they have a healthier perspective on it. They don't feel as helpless with it, right? So that's one, one layer to it. But I will say that if you have chronic stress, if you're constantly under stress, 
that is not healthy. You know, I don't care how you look at it. If you're under constant stress and to the point that it affects your sleep and it affects your relationships and it affects your ability to enjoy life. And, you know, it, you're, you're feeling more irritable because of this chronic stress. All those, you know, those elevated cortisol levels, that is not good for you, regardless of how you look at it, right? So I would like to add that caveat that, you know, we need to have tools in place to regulate our stress levels so we're not under chronic stress, which is not healthy for us physically or mentally. One of the interesting ideas, I guess, treatment strategies that I think is fascinating uh, as far as anxiety is exposure therapy. Uh, can you talk about that for a minute and if you use it in your practice and what you see as a role with that? Definitely. Great question. So one of the things that anxiety stress wants us to do is shut down. It wants us to avoid because that reduces anxiety. We're playing it safe in life, right? Um, and it's a very logical thing to do, but the problem with that is that you train your brain to be anxious of the stimulus that you're avoiding. So for example, if you're afraid to, to talk to, to ask a girl on a date, so you avoid asking the girl on a date, then you've trained your brain not to ask the girl on the date, right? And by not asking somebody else, somebody on the date, then you become, it becomes harder to ask somebody on a date because you, you haven't practiced it and you're putting it on a, on a pedestal, you're magnifying the experience of rejection or failure as being more painful than it may be. Um, so exposure is important. And what I tell people, and there's different types of exposure, but what I tell people is, let's face your fears at your pace. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, maybe you're not comfortable, for example, with going to a public place like a supermarket, like a big supermarket, you know? Okay, that's too anxiety provoking, but can you go to like a small pharmacy during off hours? And can we slowly and surely build you up to the point that you're able to go to a grocery store? Um, or sometimes people who have really bad anxiety, they, they're they not able to work because they're, you know, they're afraid of having a panic attack at work, right? Okay, well, maybe you're not ready to, to go to work is what I tell them, but are you able to drive to work and hang on the parking lot for a little bit? And then the next step is, are you able to go drive to work and get out of your car and walk around the parking lot and then go inside of work. So um, I'm a big fan of helping people build themselves up to facing their ultimate fear gradually uh, through steps that lead to a sense of empowerment. It's like, look at, let's take physical health as an example. You know, let's take, you know, running or lifting, you know, maybe somebody wants to lift, you know, making this up 200 pounds bench press. Well, you're not going to go tell them, go lift 200 pounds. They're going to injure themselves, right? Well, let's, let's get used to the exercise of, of bench pressing. Let's put, I don't know, hundred pounds, 135, 155, right? Same thing with running. You know, if somebody wants to run four miles, maybe they're not ready for that. And if they try to run four miles, they might injure themselves, but Hey, can, can you run a mile and see how that goes? And can you master that one mile run before you go to two miles and so on and so forth. So that's how I look at exposure as gradual steps uh, towards reaching and conquering your ultimate fear. It's interesting that you brought up the examples of going to a grocery store and going to work. And it seems like in the post COVID era, 
a lot of new businesses and technology and and opportunities are available for people to further isolate themselves in a bubble because that was the market that they were catering to last year. And so has this, have you noticed any sort of maybe regression in some of your patients or people you were working with because of the avail- availability of getting groceries delivered to home and working from home and just further keeping yourself in your bubble? Wow, that's a, that's a really good question. I completely agree with you. Yeah. So I've seen this with um, a couple uh, subsets of my patients. Number one, people who are germophobes, like the OCD uh, type, um, they're having a really hard time going out in, in public, for example, the fear of you know, contamination and you know, having this COVID on them, right? This, this serious um, virus. So that's been one um, subset. People with social anxiety, they're having a hard time going back in uh, public because again, they, they haven't had to socialize as much and they've lost that skill or they haven't used it. So now it's like, oh my goodness, going back to have this fear of being judged or this fear of saying something embarrassing, right? So they've, they've lost that, they've been deconditioned, right? And number three, I'm seeing this with people who experience uh, panic attacks um, because again, now they're, they've been at home and now going to the grocery store uh, or going to any public place is, is challenging for them. And they're afraid of having panic attacks in public. So we got to help them build them back up to their previous level of functioning. You look like you're about to follow this up, Caleb. <laughs> no, okay. I was just thinking. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Let me ask, you, so, let me, let me yeah, ask a yeah. question, guys, you know, because I'm, I'm removed from med school. It's been, I don't know how long. And uh, I'll tell you how long. It's been 12 years since I graduated um, med school. Um, I would imagine your classes are virtual, right? Mm-hmm. For, for a lot of the, yeah, for a lot of the lectures and group yeah. activities. So, what what has that been like for you guys? Are you noticing that there's less um, social interacting amongst um, classmates? Are, are you guys feeling more isolated? Is there an increase in depression among medical students because now you guys don't have uh, that uh, layer of social? Um, of socializing, which is a protective factor for um, anxiety and depression. So I do want to say that I think you're the one of the first interviewers to interviewees to ask us a question. Thank you. Kind of mix it up a little bit, you know. I know, right? But to answer your question, at least from uh, my experience and working as part of student leadership, a lot of the things that we've been hearing about is exactly that: people just feel more isolated, not able to not just see their friends or interact with their friends. Cause I know I was able to keep up with the people that I got close to in medical school, but it's just like seeing the people you're not that close to around the hall saying hi, having that quick, you know, stress-free conversation about like, Hey, what'd you do this weekend? I think it went overlooked in a lot of people's minds and we didn't really appreciate it as much until we were all isolated at home. Yeah, I would definitely have to agree. Um, I think being isolated I think as a medical professional, you're kind of in a conundrum because you see how important staying away from people and, and, and during the pandemic and keeping your distance and being safe. But then you also recognize how valuable connection and how valuable human interaction is. And so I think that's been a difficult thing for me to conceptualize throughout the pandemic is how much I know I need to spend time with people I care about and people I love, but I also want to try to maintain safety uh, with COVID as well. 
Yeah, I agree with you guys. And, you know, human beings, we, we have emotional needs. If you guys think of, um, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, once we've met our physical needs, we have emotional needs that emerge, one of which is the need for connection, you know, and um, feeling lonely is a huge risk factor for, again, emotional difficulties like depression and uh, anxiety. And that's been my observation as well, you know, working with my, with my patients here. Um, so I agree with you guys. Yeah, definitely. I was going to say, as a provider, um, how have you dealt with that throughout the pandemic uh, as far as your own stress and your own inability to maybe connect with people as much as you would want to? Yeah, I mean, it's been difficult for, for me like everyone else, you know. Um, and so there, there's things that I, that I have to do to take care of myself so I can take care of my family or, or my patients. Um, so I know that I, I personally exercise routinely, you know, four to five times a week. Um, it's, a, it's a huge benefit for one's mental health. You know, you get those endorphins rushing. It, it feels really good. Um, and it's a great way for me, a, a great way to release stress is, um, uh, is exercise. Um, so I have a part of my uh, basement uh, where I have like, you know, my, my, my dumbbells and treadmill and, and bench press and all that stuff. Um, so that's one thing biologically that I do. Psychologically, you know, I, I like to meditate and practice gratitude because I think a lot of times we lose perspective of the blessings in our life. We focus so much on the negative that we forget to appreciate the positive. Um, so I practice gratitude, like five minutes of gratitude meditation where I focus on something that's a positive in my life. It might be my son or my daughter or my wife or, you know, um, heck, living in the U.S. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I just sit with it for five minutes. And, you know, gratitude does not dismiss the challenges, but it's a healthy counterbalance to the negative um, things that we have in our lives. And then as far as, you know, the social component, um, you know, I, I do my best to connect with, with my loved ones with my loved ones, with my bubble, right? You know, I'm, you know, I'm lucky to, to be married, right? So that's a huge um, support system. You know, I check in on my brother, my, my, my parents. I find that um, extremely beneficial. Um, and, you know, I, I also give myself permission to just, if I, if I need to rest and lounge, to rest and lounge, you know? I think, you know, as achievers, we focus so much on like, you know, studying for exams or, you know, me writing my next article for psychology today or, you know, wh whatever we got going on that like we forget to just press pause, you know, we're always filling our times with things that we have to do. And, you know, quite frankly, one of the things that we have to do is rest, you know, so I find that really helpful sometimes, you know, just, you know, being 20 minutes outside and just staring at a tree you know, and clearing my head, you know, giving ourselves permission to, to do that seriously, you know. Um, so those are things that I've done uh, to kind of help manage my, you know, stress levels as I, you know, take care of other human beings, right? I'm glad you kind of brought up this topic, because I, I did want to switch the conversation back to anxiety and achievers. Um, are you familiar at all with Angela Duckworth's work? Uh, yeah, I think she had a, a, a TED talk. Um, was it? Eight, eight, nine years ago, I think on grit, right? I think she talked about grit. And and she wrote a book about it too. Um, but yeah, so for our listeners who don't really know, but grit is the, she describes as our ability to manage stress effectively. And there were some 
previous studies that I think you actually touched on with with uh, rats who had learned helplessness based on whether or not they could control the stress that they were being um, experimentally given. But one of the, the principal tenets of her book is that high achievers typically have higher levels of grit. And those with grit also have less anxiety. So I wanted to ask you, because to me, this seems a little bit paradoxical based on what we were talking about. Do you think there's actually a relationship between grit and anxiety? Um, do you think this is just among high performers? Or do you think this is just when you stratify the data along the general public, you see this, this relationship between grit and anxiety? Yeah, that's a great question. Let's see if we can kind of uh, peel the onion here. Great question, uh, very technical question. So grit is that ability to maintain your stamina um, and achieve long-term goals, you know, looking at life as, as a marathon, right? Mm -hmm. And again, people in, who are in medicine, they're, they're gritty, right? You do well in college, med school, residency, um, you know, and then you practice medicine. So I would, I will concede that anxiety can certainly knock someone off their path because, you know, grit is about having a growth mindset. And when you have anxiety, anxiety wants you to play it safe. Anxiety doesn't want you to take risk. Um, anxiety wants to shut you down. So from that point of view, I would say that anxiety is a barrier to being gritty. On the other hand, there's this mythology that gritted people have no anxiety, that achievers have no anxiety, and that's false. I mean, one of my roles here at the hospital is I treat physicians. I'm the psychiatrist for, for, for two local hospitals, and I treat their physicians, and I see plenty of anxiety amongst physicians, plenty. And to say that these people who have, these, they're achievers, they're physicians, and to say that these achievers who are gritty uh, they're, they're, I'm sorry, they're not gritty because they have anxiety is, is a falsehood, you know? So I, it's not an either or, it's and both. Yes, you can be gritty and you can have anxiety. I don't think one negates the other. Does that make sense how I'm explaining it? Yeah, I think so. So anxiety can definitely, if it's poorly managed and it's super high, it can definitely knock you off, the, off your path. It can definitely take away your grit, um, erode it. Mm -hmm. However, gritty people are not immune from anxiety. And I know this because I treat doctors as one of the roles that I do here at the hospital and there's plenty of anxiety that I see. I think part of what I'm hearing you say throughout this interview is that everybody has anxiety, no matter how high achieving you are or what what you think you're capable of you're going to have some level of stress and anxiety so what then allows you to make a decision between clinical anxiety and more everyday anxiety that somebody that everybody deals with yeah yeah great question so where do we draw the line between the experience of anxiety versus for example an anxiety disorder that's the that's the difference so yeah. you know and a disorder, an anxiety disorder, is when it starts to affect your day-to-day -day functioning, right? You're so anxious that you're not sleeping and having a hard time performing the next day. You're so anxious that you're having a hard time concentrating at work. You're so anxious that you're consuming alcohol to cope 
and calm your nerves, right? You're so anxious that you're afraid to socialize with people, right? You're so anxious that uh, it takes you way longer to complete a task because um, to, to finish your notes at work, for example, because again, anxiety affects um, our ability to concentrate. Um, you're irritable because you're so anxious, you're irritable and you're fighting with your loved ones. You're on edge, you're tense, right? You're a bear to be around. So again, some anxiety is okay. We, you know, it, it kind of helps motivate us, put a little fire under us. It's okay to have anxiety um, as an exam approaches. Been there, done that. The problem is when you have so much anxiety that you're getting the questions wrong because you can't think it during the exam, right? You can't even focus to answer a question or the anxiety is so much that you're kind of rushing through the exam to kind of be done with it. So you guys can, can you guys see the difference between the experience of anxiety versus it gets to the point that it's affecting your functioning? Yeah. So as a doctor, then someone who went through medical school and has been practicing for how many years? Uh, I, this is my eighth year now. Eighth year after residency. After residency. Yeah, definitely. So you're, you're, you're pretty seasoned. Uh, what would you tell specifically medical students and pre-meds um, about managing their anxiety and, and managing the feeling of anxiety throughout their training? Like, what is a couple pieces of advice specifically geared towards them that you think you wish you knew or your research is showing you or showing you up to help them out? Yeah, I think the first thing to be aware of is to, to, be, a, to be able to recognize the anxiety. Because a lot of times we have anxiety and we don't even know it. And, you know, I have people tell me, I'm on edge, I'm tense, I'm irritable, I'm not sleeping. And they don't realize that they're having anxiety. And these are signs and symptoms of anxiety, right? So that's the first step. The second thing is to have tools in place that you're using almost every day to regulate your levels of anxiety. Again, the goal is not the absence of anxiety. The goal is to have it manageable. Again, you don't want zero anxiety. Some anxiety does help some stress, but you don't want to be to the point that you're like a bear and no one wants to talk to you because you're irritable and you're not focusing and concentrating. So to be using tools almost on a daily basis to regulate the level of anxiety. And again, ideally look at it biopsychosocially because there's, my God, there's, there's so many tools and coping skills out there. I mean, you can overwhelm yourself just trying to pick through them, right? But I would say, you know, pick a couple and stick with it. I, I told you what I do. You know, I, one is biological, the exercise. You know, one is psychological, like the focusing on the gratitude. And then, you know, the, the, the social aspect of it, you know, the, 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 the talking to someone. But you might want to pick something else. For example, meditation. That's a fantastic psychological intervention for anxiety management, because when we have anxiety, we're not present in the moment. When we have anxiety, we're worrying about the future, worrying about an exam, worrying about what if people think of us, worrying about a job interview, the list goes on and on. And what meditation does is it brings you back to the present by focusing on the quality of your breath. And I know that sounds so simple, but it is so hard to do because our brain wants to create these hypothetical what if situations. And every time you bring your um, brain back to the present, you're doing a bicep curl. You know, that's the work. The noticing that you're getting anxious and bringing yourself back to that. And that is super helpful because, you know, when I'm stressed with a patient, what do I do? I come back to the present. 
I focus on the quality of my breath. You can do that even during a patient encounter. They can be talking, you can be paying attention to them and focusing on the quality of your breath to regulate your level of stress during that encounter, right? Um, so that's an example of, um, um, of, an, of an intervention. Uh, other ones, journaling. Sometimes, you know, we engage in thought patterns that make us vulnerable to anxiety, like catastrophic thinking that, you know, medical students and doctors are really prone to. If I don't do well on this test, I'm going to get kicked out of med school, you know. So, you know, the, the, the point of journaling isn't to like, you know, write every single thought and feeling that you have, but hmm, I'm anxious. What thought is making me anxious right now? This upcoming, you know, failing my exam. Well, what are the odds I'm going to fail this exam? Let's look at my history. Look at all the exams that I've taken. How many have I really failed up until this point of my training? One, zero. Okay, so what are the odds that I'm going to fail? Am I really going to fail here? Do you see what I'm saying? So just by challenging the thought that's making you anxious, you're better able to regulate the anxiety. Um, so, so those are some things that people can do. Again, you can do them on your own. They're not too time consuming and you get pretty good bang for your buck. You get pretty good uh, return on investment. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for those tips. Uh, thank you so much for interviewing with us. The last question Peter and I always like to ask our guests, and I know you write for Psychology Today and write other articles. So I definitely know you read as well. And Peter and I both love to read. And so we always like to ask, what are some of the, the most impactful books that you've read and something that you would suggest to, to leaders for, the, for them to read as well? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think as, as leaders, you know, well, let me take a step back. I think as, as physicians, we need to take leadership roles. You know, I think that healthcare is evolving and if physicians don't lead, we're going to have non-physicians lead. And I think because of that, we need to continue to grow personally and lead ourselves so that we can lead other people, especially in healthcare. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I'm all about reading leadership books. Um, the one that helped me the most was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. I read that when I was a resident. Um, and you guys are nodding your heads. I think, that, have you guys read that book or? Yeah, we have. Yeah, I, I find it funny because everybody knows or everyone says I read that book when and they remember the time of their life when they read it. I think it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that shows how impactful of a book it is when you remember when you read it, you know? So that speaks volumes. The, the one habit that I found most helpful was seek to um, understand before you're understood. That helps tremendously with conflict management because there's going to be conflict in your guys' lives. Um, you know, dealing with administration in a hospital or dealing with fellow physicians, you know, conflict is part of the human condition. And to be able to navigate conflict uh, in a way that's productive for everyone, uh, I think that's, that's, that's a, a huge skill to develop in your personal lives, like your family lives, but also um, your professional lives. Mm. One more book. I'm looking at my bookshelf here. Um, hmm. I'm going to keep it pertinent to you guys. I would say Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Um, that's, my, that's actually my favorite book. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. The, uh, I read that um, as an attending a few years ago. And what I found powerful about the book is the one quote between stimulus and response. There's that gap that, that the freedom to choose how we respond, you know, 
and that what that does is a challenge that helplessness that we may sometimes feel. Sometimes, you know, we feel trapped uh, in our life situations, trapped in our jobs, and we're never, we're, we're never trapped. We're not trapped. You know, there might be difficult decisions that we have to make. We might have to do something that might be really painful, you know, like move or change a job, you know, or end a relationship. That, that's painful. That hurts. That has, that comes at a great cost, but we're not trapped, you know? So I found that uh, powerful. And I found his life experience powerful too, how he described his experience in a concentration camp. And we don't have it that bad. You know, whatever we have going on in our lives right now and um, at Wayne State and, you know, here in Northeast Ohio, it's not as bad as what, you know, Victor Frankl had to go through. And overcoming challenges can be role modeling for other people in our lives. You know, how we handle these challenges, these stressors, these difficulties can provide other people with a compass of how to overcome difficulties when they have to go through them. So there's a purpose and meaning uh, to these life circumstances. So those are the two books that I think about that really help with leadership. Thank you so much, Dr. Sajiros, for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. Caleb, what about you? Yeah, thank you so much. That was great. Really appreciate your time. I think our listeners are going to find a lot of value in this. Yeah, and I appreciate you guys having me um, on your podcast. Thank you so much. And you guys are doing great work uh, promoting uh, leadership in in medicine. That's tremendous. Uh, Keep up the great work, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We hope you learned something new or got a thought you can reflect on to further your own leadership development. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also connect with us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.